in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, the third to last book in the Old Testament. Priorities. When it comes to priorities in life, God is very much concerned with where He falls on the list. If we're to list out all the things that are important to us, where does God fall? He He is uh, very interested as to where He He is on that list. Matthew chapter six verse thirty three, Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. He says the the first priority here is to seek Christ, seek God, seek His things first. Now, in that chapter in Matthew 6, Jesus had been warning uh, or had been teaching against worrying. Don't spend your time worrying because what, what does that do for you? Who has ever added another day to their life because they worried more? Or who has given themselves more clothes? I mean, God cares about the grass of the field, He says. If He cares about the grass of the field, don't you think He cares about you? You who are made in His image and who are bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, yet, in our day, there is great potential to focus on things that become that should become secondary. We, we make that the most important thing. We make that the priority. And God gets pushed to the outskirts of our lives. He gets pushed to the edge. And uh, many many times the bulk of our waking hours are are spent really thinking about uh, the essential things in life, which even good things like food and clothing and shelter. But if we don't balance the the necessary things with the most important thing, with an urgency to do what God has called us to do, then we can easily undermine a proper sense of what actually is most important in life. And that is God and and advancing His kingdom in the sense that that we are explaining to others the grace of Jesus Christ. And so when our priorities get out of whack, we start making decisions with with our best interests in mind rather than God's. And God uh, gets the leftovers. He he gets pushed to the outside of our lives and, and He gets the leftovers. Well, if we have more time, then we'll spend it with you, God. Or if we have more money or whatever it is. But this, isn't, this is not authentic discipleship. Jesus urged His followers to seek eternal priorities first. And in doing so, He assured us in Matthew 6.33 that if we do that, then He'll take care of all the rest. I mean, if God cares even about the wicked and, and whether they have their next meal or not, and whether rain falls on them or not, then how much more does He care about you? So, so we don't have to worry about those things. We need to put our, our focus and our attention, our priority on what is most important, and that is on God. And uh, we can never claim that God is, is uncaring or unconcerned about our situation. We'll see that God is trying to bring our attention back to Himself here in Haggai chapter 1. Let's begin reading uh, this prophet beginning with verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. This people says, The time is not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. God demands first place. We cannot put Him down in the list of our priorities. He must have first place. And so we're going to see that today as we look through this this chapter from this prophet. We begin with the first verse. We see the man, uh, Haggai. This was written by the prophet Haggai. It was a message to the people of, of Judah. He wrote it around, well, we know when he wrote it. The first part of the verse tells us, in the second year of Darius the king. Um this was several years after they had returned from the exile. So we have been working our way up to the time where Israel and Judah are taken into captivity. Well, that time is now past because now we're at the first year of, of, uh, of King Darius. Now, this is not the Darius of Daniel, the one who, you remember, Daniel was put into the lion's den and that, that king was uh, distraught all night and then he comes and and checks to see if he's okay. But rather, it's a, a, a later Darius. And this, so this happens, we know, at around 520 B.C. Actually, it happens during 520 B.C. It's, it is the second year of his reign. So we know that because it's the, the first day of the sixth month, that it's about August 29th, 520 B.C. This is probably one of the places in Scripture where we can be most exact with the date because... There is only uh, one Darius during this time, and um, and so we can be more exact 
so we're talking about 16 years after the exile. They had been sent away. They they um, they had been taken away off into captivity. Now they had been brought back. If you remember from Ezra, the the rebuilding of the temple began right away, and they started on it. But if you remember, you, um, there is some opposition. Um, they they had some Samaritans and some other neighbors who were, were afraid of the religious implications. Oh, great! This temple's going back up, and now that this means my, I might need to live rightly again. And so, as a result, they strongly opposed the people of Judah from from putting up this temple, and so the people gave up. And now, 16 years later, Haggai writes. And he says, look at this temple. This temple that you started to rebuild is not rebuilt. It, it's, it's in disarray at this point. It's not in a serviceable manner. And so Haggai is used of God to show them their misplaced priorities. Um, I said that this is written to the, the people of Judah, the, the, the people who had been in captivity and exile. Now they've come back. And the reason I say that is because notice uh, Zerubbabel at the end of verse 1 is the governor of Judah. So that suggests to us that he's speaking not to uh, the northern uh, tribe of Israel, but rather to the southern tribe of Judah where Jerusalem would be. And this is where the temple would be set up, by the way. So um, it's a good indication that, that this is speaking to the, the southern tribe of Judah. Zerubbabel is a grandson of Jehoiakim who was uh, heir to David's throne. And uh, he also was the governor of Judah during this time. Joshua, we see in verse 1, is a high priest and the son of Jehozadak. So he would be a, uh, a person whose line was, was taken all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother. And uh, so, so that's how he, God, he was used of God during that time. So in verses 2 through 11, what we see here is that, that God helps us to see our wrong priorities. He just comes right out and says it. He says, the time has not come for, for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. He, he shows the people that they have misplaced their priorities. It's time to get their focus back where it ought, ought to be. Because w- what was going on is the people had developed this apathetic attitude towards the things of God towards the temple of God. Notice verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. We're going to hold off until things become a little bit easier. It's a little bit difficult right now. So, I mean, we have some opposition and so we don't want to continue on that because that must not be God's will because there is opposition. So we'll hold off on those things until things are more convenient. And when everything starts to fall in place, then we'll get back out there and do, do that rebuilding of the temple like, like God has asked us to. But God was very clear that He wanted them to see that this was a problem. It wasn't a problem that they were completely opposing Him, saying, we reject you as God. It wasn't a problem that they didn't have enough materials because as we'll see later, they had plenty of materials to take care of their own houses. It was a problem of indifference towards what God wanted them to do. It was the idea that it doesn't matter if it gets finished or not. I don't care if the temple of God is finished or not because what's the difference? God can still work without a temple. 
Um, and, he, and God showed them in verses 3 and 4 that they had plenty of time and energy to, to work on their own houses. Notice verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? You have plenty of time to live in your own paneled houses. You've taken lots of time and energy to rebuild those. And, and, and the paneling idea is not the paneling that we're thinking about, but rather it's, it's more like a cedar paneling. This is a, a very nice uh, way to, to um, accent a house. Um, typically something that was associated with kings and, and their dwelling places. And so God is saying, you focus your efforts on having a comfortable and beautiful dwelling place while, my, while I am over here homeless, basically. I, I don't have a temple where I can, can be worshipped. And you don't seem to care. And so, so there's, a, there's something that we need to see here, I think. And that is that, that when God's work gets hard, sometimes the easiest place to go is to where we can have things under control. Sometimes when, when God's work becomes so difficult, we, we go to a, a um, I don't know how else to say this, but a happy place. Okay? Somewhere where we can, can and forget all of our worries, forget all the struggles, and, and go to a place where we can stop thinking about it. So when our marriage is struggling, we imagine having a wife who obeys everything that we can do or having a husband who who just loves us with all that they have. And yet, that, that's not where we're at. You see, we go to this, this fantasy uh, or when problems happen at work, we give up on, on all of life. And some people even commit suicide because they think, I can't handle these problems anymore and so I'm going to go to a place where it will be easier for me. And so I'm going to, to, to commit suicide. Or when there are problems with our investments, then we play video games for hours because that is an area in which we can control. Or when, when, uh, when things get difficult at work or friends turn their backs on us, we go shopping or we overeat or something. We go to a place where we can be satisfied and when God's purposes become too difficult for us, we spend time doing things that we have control over. That's what's happening here. It's become too difficult to do God's work. Yeah, God, I see how you can be glorified by this, but it's not working for me. I'd rather be here, so I'm going to go there. I'm going to go where it's, it's a lot easier. Why do we do that? I think it's the same reason that Israel gave up on God's house and made themselves busy with their own houses. It was that they were dissatisfied with what God was doing. It was as if they were saying, God, you're not making it easy enough for us, so I'm going to take refuge in something that I can control. I'll be my own God, in a sense. Now, they wouldn't say that. We wouldn't say that to God. But that's, with our actions, what we're doing. We're pushing Him. See, now, from first place, what is most important, we're going to do what you want us to do, and what is most important, now you're going to be pushed down to the side. Okay, Maybe down to four or five. We're still there. We still like you, God, and everything. 
But now I've got something more important, and that is my personal satisfaction, my personal uh, desires, and so on. And because God's work becomes too hard, we push it aside. So God gives them a command to, to consider, verses 5 through 11. He gives them a command. Uh, we notice this command in verse 5 and 7. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then down to verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. We have the command proper. And then he goes on in verse 8 and tells them, not only should you consider your ways, but look at verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. He's saying, listen, in case we're not clear here, here's what I want you to do. Consider what you're doing. My temple has not become as important as it should be. And so now here's what I'm telling you to do. Get back to work. Get back to work on the temple. So that, And notice the reason in verse 8, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. What is God's priority here? God's priority is not that they are comfortable. God's priority is not that, that they are happy and, and satisfied necessarily, although that will be a, a, a result of it. His priority is what? It's His own glory. Do you notice that? So that I may be pleased and I may be glorified. Not that you are pleased and satisfied, but that I may be glorified. God's glory is always of most importance of most importance and that's what should be most important for us as well. God gives them a reason to reflect on His work, um, on His work among them. He's saying, listen, consider your ways, verse 5, and here's why. Notice all the things that's happening around you, verse 6. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. So you have this you have this insatiable appetite. It's never satisfied. In addition to that, you you drink, but there's never enough to become drunk. This insatiable thirst. And then you're unsatisfied with your clothing. You put on clothes, but but it's not warm enough for you. And at the end of the verse, we see that there are fleeting finances. They're fading away. And he who earns, earns wages to put in purse with holes. It's as if they're... They're filling up their purses with all this money that they've earned and it's falling out the bottom. It's doing them no good. Verses 10 and 11, God talks about a drought that He had sent so that He could get their attention to wake them up. Verse 10, Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the laborers. Labor of your hands. So he's saying, listen, people, you see all this, these things that are happening around you? You see why you're not satisfied with all these temporal things? You see why that there has been a drought? I'm telling you why. Because I'm trying to show you that you need to consider your ways. Consider what you're doing here. You're not putting me first. And that's the problem. This brings us to an interesting um, principle that we need to think about. Does God still work this way? 
I mean, how does God get our attention when we sink into complacency? When we when we wallow in apathy with regard to God's God's truth and His work, how does God get our attention? Does He do it the same way as He did it here? I mean, when we neglect to read the Bible, for example, does our Bible magically fly off the shelf, push the power button on the TV, whap us upside the head and open up in front of us so that we can start reading it? When we're active, when we're not actively participating in the local church, does um, does God write a message in the sky and say, "Hey, you need to start participating more. You need to be a part of a growing church. You need to be a part of a healthy body. You need to be praying for the church." I mean, how does God get our attention? Well, if you were in our uh, class on Sunday mornings a while back, you'll know that that it's not a still small voice in which God speaks to us. He doesn't give us an audible message like uh, like they had heard here. They heard a voice from God through the prophet Haggai. God speaks us to us today how? He speaks to us through His Word. But we have to recognize that God often uses circumstances as well to get our attention, to wake us up, to to help us to see that that we are not in control. For example, have you ever been in a a time in your life where you have been complacent spiritually and something happened? Perhaps a friend or a close relative died. And all of a sudden, you wake up from this this daze that you have spiritually, and you realize there's more important things to life than what I'm pursuing after. So we could say that God uses something like that, a death in the family, to cause us to get our attention. He, he, he uses a death to draw, him, draw us back to Himself. In fact, um, Ecclesiastes says that it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of prayer because then we understand the end of all things. We think about, we, we think about the, the eternal life rather than the, the temporal, the, the life that is here and now. Or have you ever lost your job or had a major financial catastrophe that God used to help you to, 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 to go to your knees or to, to look to His Word to find out what kind of wisdom you ought to be uh, thinking about during this difficult time? We could say that God used, used something like that um, to get our attention. Okay? Now, there is a danger in going too far. With, with this type of understanding. We can become mystical about everything that happens where God is talking to us in every little thing that happens. So, gas just goes up 10 cents. God must hate us. I must have done something wrong. What was it? What is He trying to tell me? Okay, well, perhaps there's a Christian gas owner who God's helping him out. You know, it, it could, It's not all about you. Okay? So God does use circumstances, but we can't go too far. Or, you know, I had eight of ten red lights on the way to church, so God must be telling me something. We don't need to look for God in, in, in traffic lights 
or in, in, in the, even the smallest things in life and look for Him to be speaking to us. We can't be ridiculous. But we do have to recognize that 1 Corinthians 11.30 says that Paul was saying that there are some of you, some among you who are sick and some even sleep. And his point was that, that some of those people were not taking seriously the Lord's Supper. And so, as a result, God was getting their attention that they have now had physical difficulties as a way for God to get their attention and the people around them. And some sleep. Sleep is the idea of death. That some have died. And so God does use different circumstances to get our attention. Paul, for example, received a thorn in the flesh. Why? Paul recognized that it was so that it would, he would not boast in himself. He had a some sort of physical disability, something that kept him from doing all that he wanted to do, and, and God brought that into his life so that he could he could uh, recognize that God was in control and that he could not that Paul could not boast in himself. So God does use circumstances and trials to get our attention. Um, but but we gotta be careful because it's difficult to to know exactly when God is 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 using those things in one way as to another. For example, when we look at the book of Job, we have Job's three friends coming and tell, trying to speak on behalf of God. And what they end up doing is saying something that God never said about Job. Well, Job, this must be because you don't have a right relationship with God. This trial came because you are, are, are sinning in some way. Job, you got to admit it. And Job says, I I have tried to fulfill everything that I have done before God and and by the way that is one of the worst things that you can possibly do to a person who is suffering is to point them to their sin okay let let God do that what what they're doing is speaking authoritatively on behalf of God where God hasn't spoken and that's dangerous all that we can say is that God does use circumstances to get our attention at times but it's, all it should do is drive us back to the Scriptures. Okay, like that death in the family or that financial difficulty. It should drive us back to the Scriptures and back uh, to an inward reflection of our own heart. God, do I have You as first place in my life? Search my heart and, and know my ways and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me into the way everlasting. Sometimes God uses trials and circumstances to test us, to see where we're at. Sometimes He uses it to strengthen us. But no matter what comes in our life, we should think about it in terms of what is clear. Okay, Circumstances are not always clear as to what God is saying. So go back to the Scriptures and find out what He is saying. Why does He use those circumstances in our lives? Okay, So God helps us see our wrong priorities and then in verses 12 through 15, God demands that we uh, properly place Him as first among our priorities. That we place Him first among our priorities. Verses 12 through 15. What we see in verse 12 is that the response by the people, by the leaders and the, the remnant of the people, is that they obey and worship. Notice the second part of the verse. With all the remnant of the people 
They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. This is what God was looking for. He was looking for obedience and worship. Obedience, yes, God, I will do what you want me to do. Worship, God, I exalt you and I desire that you are first place. I give you the worth that you deserve. That's the idea of worship. And then in verses 14 and 15, we see that not only do they do that, they, they obey and do what God had told them but in worship, but they also start the job back up. They, they continue the job. Verse 14, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. This took place 23 days after Haggai had spoken to them. He spoke to them on August 29th, 520 B.C., and now now they continue the work on September 21st, 520 B.C. And notice the Lord's hand on all this. They came and worked the end of verse 14, or I'm sorry, at the beginning of verse 14, so the Lord stirred up. He stirred up the leaders. He stirred up the people to obey Him. So even in that, they can't take the credit for it because God was the one who, who stirred them up to do it. We can't muster strength and desire on our own to do what God has want, and we can't take the credit for it because God is the one who does it. And notice God's pleasure in verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you. God's desire here was to meet with His people, as it has been since the beginning of time. Not because He needs something for them, but because He's a loving God. And that He wants to show them how great of a God He is. And so He, he, he blesses them in a way that they could not see in any other way. That In no better way does He bless them than by giving Him more of Himself. And it started with work on the temple itself. You do work on the temple. You show that you're committed to what I want. You put my work first. And that becomes for you and for me a visible sign of, of your determination and your loyalty to me. You see, before you were showing that you were loyal to all of your houses and your own comfort. But now you step away from all of that and the busyness of life and you spend time on the temple. And that shows to me, to you, to the people around that you care about me. It's, it's a visible sign of, of God's delight in them that they were committed to Him. And so the, the, um, the truth that we can learn certainly from this is that we should not delay in doing what is most important. What about you? Has there been some kind of opposition that has kept you from accomplishing God's work in your life? As we saw this morning, there, there will never cease to be that opposition. It will always be there. But has there been something specific that, is, that, that you have just said, I can't do it. Now is not the time. 
It's not the time to obey the Lord. I'll wait until it's a little easier. It's a little bit more convenient. But let me share a little secret with you. It will never be more convenient than it is now. It will never be more convenient. The Christian life will always be hard because we are citizens of another place. We are citizens of heaven. And we live in a land that is not our own. We are aliens in that sense. And because of that, the people of this world are opposed to us. And and they're not opposed to us specifically, but they're opposed to God and by connection to us. And so there will always be opposition. There will always be circumstances. The powers of hell and Satan are always going to be against us. Sometimes we, we don't think in those terms. We just think it's, it's, it must not be God's will for me to, to do what He's called me to do because it's, it's too hard. There's too many roadblocks. But it, it, we would be like... Uh, in, when we make that sort of statement or when we think in that, those terms, we would be like a soldier saying... Did you see what they got over there? They got guns. I'm not going over there to rescue that hostage. Hostage? Are you kidding me? It must not be the commander's desire for me to get that hostage because there's just too much opposition going on. I will wait until it becomes more convenient, until things kind of fall in place. Maybe all the enemies are gone and, and maybe they'll be left alone. Your neighbor is never going to say, hey, you know what? I noticed that God is very important to you, so I'll tell you what, I'm going to mow your lawn and I'm going to clean out your garage and wash all your windows so that you can go to church because I know that's important to you. That's not going to happen. If it does, let me know. I'd like to move into your neighborhood. No one's going to pay you to read the Bible. Okay, You, you get this amount of money to read this many verses. No one's going to give you an award or write a book about you for being faithful to God. And if that's what you're looking for, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. It's all too easy to push God and His work off to a lower priority, but God says, how can you give so much attention to polishing up all the things of your life, put the cedar paneling on your own house, and yet you don't have enough time for me? All the while, I am left on my own. So, we need to put God's work first. Put God's work first. And that means that we need to do the basics of of what every Christian should be doing. Reading the Bible. Simply listening to God. You've heard this hundreds of times from people in churches. And that's what it comes down to. It comes down to reading and listening to God through His Word. It's the most simple of disciplines, but it's one of the hardest to do. Praying. Praying to God. Offering up thanksgiving for what He has done. Asking Him for for things in life that, that His name would be exalted. Participating... Uh, Putting God's work includes reading the Bible, praying, participating in the local church. 
What is God doing in this era? How is God exalting Himself in this age? He's doing it through the local church. And how are you actively involved in it? Are you? We need to put God's work first. Take a, take a second to imagine what your life would be like if you got what you really wanted. What would your life be like if you got everything you wanted? Do you have a picture in your mind? Is God there? Or has He been pushed to the side? Is He at the center of what you desire? Is God and His work the most important thing in your life? Or are you pursuing after something else that when eternity comes, you'll look back on and say, that was fleeting. What was I thinking? I spent so much time pursuing after my own pleasure and I put God out to the periphery. And when we do that, what, what happens is our best energy... You know what I'm saying? You know when, when you have your best energy in a given day. What is that best energy being given towards? Because when we spend our best energy, let's say even... Okay, let's put work aside. We, we all have to, to work to make a living. But let's put that aside and, and let's talk about our, our what we call free time. The best energy of your free time, how is it being used for God and His work? Because when we push God to the side, what happens is our bank accounts get drained when it's time to give to the Lord's work, when there's a need. Well, God, I mean, there's, we can't do it because we've already spent it on other things. Or our schedules are booked when it's time to participate in in the local church and in, in spreading the gospel and in, in advancing God's work and sending a thank you note or an email telling someone that you're praying about them. I don't have time for those things because I've already filled up my schedule with good things even. Not things that are evil. Good things can even come and take the priority over God. Like putting cedar paneling on a house. God saying, that's not what's most important. God is, is teaching us, I think, that, that sometimes we spend all of our energy and our time and our money on the things that we want most while the progress of the church is left with nothing. God is saying, my house is in ruins while you're living in paneled houses. So we ought to consider our ways. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because in all this talk about God's house, we may be confused and think that that, that means, well, we need to do more projects around the church. Okay, that might be an application of this passage, but I don't think that's what God is intending. Okay, he's not talking about um, the fact that the building itself is the thing that we need to spend our attention on. And that's why I've been saying that, that God's work. Notice where God resides now in 1 Corinthians 3. Where is God's temple? Verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? 
and that the Spirit dwells in you. That the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, what we can't tell from our English translation is that the word you, at the beginning of verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God? That is not singular. Okay, So that's not talking about you individually, that you and I each are temples of God, that we're all little temples of God. No. Paul is talking to the church at Corinth as a whole, and he's saying, you, we could say with the southern term, y'all, you all are the temple of God. This is where God resides in the church. This is where God says, I am here. Okay, so, so when I say the church, I'm talking about the people because we can be at an outdoor service and still be the church. This is the building where we come, but that's not what God's talking about when God's saying, you've left my work aside. He's not talking about the building. Okay, do you see what I'm saying now? Do you see where I'm trying to, to help apply this to us? that our responsibility is to put God first and His work with regard to His temple, the church, the body of Christ, the people, the building up of the saints. God's temple today is the local church. People live in, even Christians, live in in perpetual frustration and discontentment, never satisfied. And so we can't pass over this lesson from Haggai 1 quickly. And that is, it's easy for us to devote ourselves to sowing uh, all of our pleasures, to, to even going after eating and drinking and clothing ourselves and earning wages, but the whole time neglect God's primary ministry in this age, the local church. And if you do that, you will live in constant frustration. You will have an insatiable appetite. You will never be satisfied for the things of this world because they don't satisfy. They're all passing away. They will all perish. But God's Word abides forever and His truth stands. And so our hope, our desires in life should all be directed towards what is most important, what it should be at the top of all of our lists, God and His work in the local church. And if you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world and don't spend it for the glory of God, that, that God would be glorified every pleasure will leave an aftertaste of depression and guilt and frustration and anger because that's not where God is. God is is among His people in the local church and our priority should be to build one another up within this body. So let's commit ourselves individually and as a group to, to give God first place where He deserves. I mean, it's so easy to, to look to all of our own pleasures and pursue after them and say there's too much opposition, but God's saying to us, no. What is most important to me is me and my work, and it should be most important to you. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, it is very easy for us 
to say with our lips that you have first place in our lives. But it is a truth like this uh, that was given to us by your, your Spirit, handed down over the ages through the prophet Haggai, that helps us to see that as much as we talk about you having first place, our talk means nothing unless it's uh, connected to actions that uh, reveal that we are committed to this body and we are committed to building each other up, that we are committed to strengthening one another's faith, to go after those who are hurting and those who are uh, doubting, those who are failing. Lord, we all have a responsibility and it's very easy within the local church to become complacent and to take uh, a view of, of Your control to an extreme that You never intended. To think that, well, because You're in control, everything's going to happen as it will and so we need to do nothing. You have given us a responsibility and we don't understand how that works with Your sovereignty, but we do understand that You have commanded us to obey. And so our heart's desire is that we would commit ourselves to You. We believe that, that, that there is nothing more important in this life and in life to come than serving You and doing Your work. We believe that. Help our unbelief. Lord, help us to obey You in all things and to do what You've commanded because You are a God who is worthy of all of our praise and, and service. And we would love to see this church uh, be excited and grow with, with a, a knowledge and a love for You that is unmatched. Not so that we can be praised, but so that people around can see what a great God You are. And in order for that to happen, it, it starts with a commitment to You and it, it continues with little uh, steps of obedience. Just baby steps of obedience. Just saying yes to You on a daily basis. Or do You know the needs of each person in our body? You know each of the needs within the members of this church. And we don't always know them. Sometimes we don't want to know them because we know we may have to do something about them. But I pray that You would help us to, to seek out and help other people where we can. Give up of ourself and our resources so that other people can, can see Your grace in their own lives. We pray that You'd help us to build each other up in our most holy faith and that You would be pleased and glorified in it. There's nothing more important than your glory, and we want to spend our lives giving, uh, giving up ourselves for your glory. Give us the grace to do so through Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.